Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We start a new series today. And I'm going to have to read it again because I will get the G's mixed up. Gather, grow, go. Church on mission. Church in fellowship. And a little bit about this series. I think every year we need to just come back once to what it means to be the church. Because sometimes we can just get in the habit of saying, I'm going to church, rather than remembering that we are the church, right? And we are using these words, mission and fellowship, and some, if you're new to church, you you don't know what we mean by those. If you've been in church, you might have the wrong idea about what those mean. Uh, Fellowship can tend to mean we're going to go have donuts and coffee together. And that's not wrong, but that's just part of what fellowship means. Fellowship really means this participation that we have together as the body of Christ in Jesus Christ. And so we want to unpack some of that as we talk about gathering together and growing. Uh, our, our, Our culture is so independent that we don't think about growing together in Jesus Christ. And part of that is that we actually are interdependent, not independent, but that we actually learn to grow together and depend on one another for our growth, that we can mature together in Christ. And the tendency then is even when we get that going, we can say church is really about us four and no more. And we begin to focus inward instead of looking outward, and looking outward is mission. We're really called to advance the good news, which is what our guest preacher is going to speak to us about today. I want to tell you a little bit about Pastor Eric Bancroft. Uh, This is a picture of him and his family, his wife, Danelle. But um, Eric is really, one, in my opinion one of the best types of pastors. And here's why. Uh, Eric is a humble learner. When you sit down with him, you will feel like he is trying to learn something about life and God from you, even though he's a pastor. He's a very genuinely humble person. And secondly, he's going to talk to you about advancing the gospel Um, But before he does that, I want you to know that he really lives that. Eric was a pastor in Los Angeles. He was also a pastor in Indianapolis, led a fairly large church in Indianapolis, had really invested in the church and had grown the church and felt like God was calling him to come to South Florida and start Grace Church Miami from scratch. And Eric followed that call, him and his wife, because they wanted to see the gospel advance, leaving a big church to come and start at zero so that they could reach new people for Christ. So even as he comes to this morning to talk to you about church on mission and advancing the gospel, know that he really lives this and he wants to share with you from his heart. So let's welcome him as he comes up.
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for Pastor Eric. We thank you for his love for you. And we pray that you would change us as he brings the word this morning, that we might all love the gospel more and be more committed to advancing the gospel for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just say that I am uh, glad to finally be with you this morning. I say finally, uh, not because I've been waiting for this invite, uh, but finally because I have known your pastor for a while and have heard about you guys and have prayed for you, and now I get to see you with my own eyes. Um, and so I just want you to know how thankful I am. It is our practice uh, uh, when we meet as a church to pray for the churches uh, each and every week, and we pray for you guys. We're thankful for you. Um, I also just have a, a, a special place in my heart to be with you. I used to live in Hollywood, Florida, oh, uh, let's say about uh, 24, 25 years ago. Uh, so the quick backstory is um, I... I've kind of, I'm kind of like a geographical mutt. I've been all over the country. Uh, I don't, was not raised in a Christian family. My first dad was Army. Second dad was DEA. That stands for Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, and uh, just moved all over the country. Minnesota, Georgia, Colorado, South Carolina, Florida. Uh, moved down here when I was 19. I got into a fight with my parents, particularly my dad. Got kicked out at 19. I don't recommend you do that. He made the right decision. I made the wrong one. So I've been living on my own since I was 19 and uh, moved into a house with a bunch of guys, crazy up in uh, Broward. And then um, finally just said, you know what, this house is a bit of a hot mess. It's not helping me in any way. And so I moved into a little studio apartment over here in Hollywood by the tracks, uh, the railroad tracks, on the other side of the railroad tracks, literally speaking here. And, uh, and that's where I was. And um, God used that at a time of my life tremendously to get my life a really clarity on the gospel and back to living for the Lord. My wife was born and raised in Miami. She's an OG before the founding of the city. Her family goes back to uh, Miami, like, like, like 1800s kind of thing. And so um, she, uh, she just came from a godly family. I did not. We met and married and then moved, as your pastor said, to Los Angeles in 98. We're there for seminary and then ministry and then Indianapolis. And now we're back. And uh, we just started a, a church, kind of sent out from Providence Road Church in Miami and then our other sending church that I was the senior pastor at Indianapolis. And we're, we're back in Miami. Uh, we just started this year. So we're like still kind of in the nursery. Like you can tap on the glass and see us. We're kind of adorable, but we make a hot mess and you can't sleep at night thinking about us. Um, so it's, it's just like that with the young church. Um, we meet on Sunday nights at five o'clock. Uh, that's where we're at. And so it's just a joy to be with you here this morning. Um, your pastor is very, very kind. I definitely don't deserve those words. Any evidence of grace is indeed God's grace in my life. And I'm looking forward to the time now to be with you in the word. Um, as you saw, my family, I have three teenage sons, seven, uh, 16, 17, and 19. The 19-year-old has followed in his dad's footsteps and has already left the house, but I did not kick him out, uh, just for the record. Uh, he is finding himself working in all these farms from Georgia to New York and 
heading to Uganda next year. And you can pray for me as a dad. And for those of you who have older kids, you know what this is like. So it's a, it's a new season for us. Um, but I'm excited to be with you, excited for this chance to be in the Word. I'm excited for really what it's about. It's about our opportunity to worship Christ in light of what the work of Christ has been seen and done for us on the cross and the empty tomb. And so that's my desire to do so this morning. We've heard enough about me. I want to tell you a story about another gentleman and a legend about this man. This gentleman um, was on a journey in the wilderness, and he was for a time uh, doing well. He had all the amenities, all of the resources that he needed, but he had been finally so long out in this place of wilderness founding himself away from shelter, running out of his food, eventually out of his water, that he was without any supplies for days and found himself in a desperate state, wondering if he could make his way back to civilization where he would at least find some water, if not some food, and be restored back to his family. He had been in this situation for a number of days, extremely dehydrated, extremely sick, until in the distance he saw what was like a bit of a remains of a lean-to structure, an old shelter that had been there for years. He made his way up against it, sat back against the wall, if nothing else, just to get a little bit of shade from the wall, even though the roof was off of this building. He looked out, just sitting against the wall for a few feet in front of him and realized there's an old pump. You know those old sort of water pumps that has like the big long handle on it? And he crawled over to that pump and he pumped in desperation, hoping he would get some water out of that pump and nothing came. Went back to that wall, sat there and just thought, man, I don't know if I can get up. This might be my final resting place. Looking over to his left, just outside of where he was sitting, he saw kind of half sticking out of the ground an old jug. He crawled over to the jug, realized it had a note on it, he looked at the note around the neck of the bottle, and he read the note, kind of a faded writing, and he, it said, you have to pour all of this contents into the pump to prime the pump. Once you're finished, and you get the water you want, make sure to fill it back up before you leave. Pop the top, look into the jug, and lo and behold, inside was water. He was desperate for water. Did not know how long this water had been, though, in this jug. After all, the jug was faded, the writing was smeared. He thought, mm, this could be pretty rancid water, but rancid water is better than no water. The instructions were quite clear. Take the water, pour it in the pump, prime the pump, he'll get the water. The problem is, what if these instructions are outdated? What if they're no longer relevant? What should he do with these instructions? Should he listen to them and maybe make a horrible mistake or should he follow them? makes what seems least for some of us a crazy decision. He goes over to the pump, he pours the water in the pump, and he begins to pump it with everything he's got, which is not much energy. Nothing comes. Finally some movement, 
Something comes, but friends, it would be nothing like you or I would want to drink. It was like brown, dark sludge. He keeps pumping further and further. It begins to run clearer and clearer until finally, to his great delight, clean, clear water starts coming out of this pump. And he begins to drink. Putting his head underneath it as he is pumping it and drink and drink and drink. And he can literally feel the strength coming back into his body. And he is finally getting his strength back. After he's drank for sinning and for so long and feels he has done all that he can, he's ready to now continue his journey. He remembers the instructions. He takes the jug, he fills it back up with water puts the top on it, puts the note back on the neck where he found it, and he grabs a little piece of charcoal over to the side, and he says, P.S., it really works, but you have to pour it all out before you can expect to get anything back. Friends, therein lies the message for our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1. Friends, it really, really works. But you have to pour everything out before you can expect to get anything back. Friends, this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to people and tell them about Jesus. We're not simply saying, hey, you look like you have some areas of incompleteness in your life. You ought to try Jesus. As if somehow Jesus is like this missing link. He is a sort of missing portfolio. If you add him into the seemingly already pretty committed life you have, he can seemingly make everything go better. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus says, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your very own life, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, give it all to me. And giving it all to me you will get something back you never could have imagined. You will finally understand what it's like to, to sit with the woman at the well who suddenly thought, my life is over. I cannot imagine. He says, I will give you water where you will never drink again. Friends, that's exactly what's happening here in Philippians chapter 1. That is our text this morning. If you have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to turn there with us. If you do not, that is okay. Happy to read it for us this morning. Philippians chapter 1, as we learned this morning. Now, I feel privileged, honestly, your pastor has allowed me to not only come to speak to you, but to come and do so. Oh, thank you, friends. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, do me a favor, just put your hand up, and we will have one of the gentlemen bring you a copy of the Scripture. So if you'd love a copy, put your hand up. we got one here. One there, we're prepping for the altar call. This is sweet. Getting ready. I love it. I love it. All right. Philippians chapter 1. But as I was saying, I, I feel privileged that your pastor has invited me to speak to you at the beginning of this series on this uh, series on gather, grow, and go. And I hope this to be kind of like a the shotgun blast, the, the, the writer's uh, the, the, the running gun here as we get shot out of the cannon, begin this race together over the next several weeks with me starting us off. Philippians chapter 1. If you would, 
Philippians chapter 1. Listen as I read it to you. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 27. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, there's four lessons I want us to learn this morning. God is wanting us to see from Paul's writing here, and I think it's significant in the beginning of this series, gather, grow, and go. There's four lessons that New City Fellowship needs to understand. First of all, number one, remember God orchestrates events in His people's lives to advance the gospel. Remember, God orchestrates events in his people's lives to advance the gospel. Friends, we've just parachuted in this text this morning, but let me kind of give you a, a quick lay of the land, a bit of an understanding. Paul planted this church in Philippi. Uh, he loves them. He cares about them. He prays for them. He is thankful for them. He knows them literally by name. And he's writing them because he misses them. You could imagine like your pastor John having planted this church and if God in the future had called him away to do 
other ministry, but oh, how he would hold you in his heart and care for you and pray for you and want to be with you at times, but could not be withheld from that. Friends, that's what's happening for Paul. But Paul is not away because he has moved on to seemingly bigger and better things. Let's be honest, sometimes us pastors can talk like that. Under the banner of God's called me, sometimes pastors get away with self-promotion in how they found a church that will give them more money or more people or give them a chance to start a parachurch ministry really gives them what they want, which is recognition. That are just seemingly the everyday life of a local church. That's not Paul. Paul's not writing from the Mediterranean of his new parachurch outpost as he thinks about the days of old when that small, small little cute church in Philippi. No, friends, Paul is writing from prison. Look with me, if you will, back at verse 7. As he's speaking about them earlier, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. Look at how he loves them. For you, are part, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You jump back down to our verse in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him? He's been arrested. He's been arrested. Now, let's, let's just consider this, the realistic reality of what's going on here. It isn't like Paul had like the clipboard that passed around. It's like, oh, let's see, we got the greeting team. We got the hospitality team. We got the sound team. We got the music team. We got child care ministry. Oh, prison ministry. Oh, that's a God. I'll do that. Oh, there's a clipboard. Right? I mean, like, Paul didn't read the small print. Like, wait, are we talking in front of the bars or behind the bars? Paul's behind the bars. Paul is behind the bars for doing the very thing he did in front of the bars, preaching the gospel. And seemingly where it took him was into prison. I don't know about you, friends, but sometimes faithfulness and obedience, we believe, should be received and responded to by God with more blessing, with the removal of hardship or difficulty. For Paul, the promotion was a new opportunity to preach the same gospel to a new people and a new place, and it landed him in jail. It's a hardship. But look at what he says in verse 12. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How is this true? Verse 13, that the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul has a completely different perspective. He's like, yo, these guys think they're chained to me. You got to watch me, <laughs> suckers. They're the ones who don't know they're chained. I'm chained to them and the idea that I get to evangelize them. That I am here for the opportunity to tell them, well, since you ain't going, you can't go anywhere because I can't go anywhere. Let's talk. Friends, it might not be you in prison, but it might be you at a work shift. It might be you sitting and waiting at a bus stop for your ride, not wanting to miss it like maybe you missed it last week. So you arrived early, but in arriving early, you got a few more minutes for conversation. 
They're not going anywhere because you're going to catch that same bus. It doesn't matter where you find yourself. The question is, wherever you find yourself, do you recognize that God is oftentimes moving in his people's lives so that you can advance the gospel, so you can have a conversation about Jesus Christ? Now, friends, what's happening here in the text, to not try to clean it up, to not try to put our Sunday best on here, Paul is in a prison where they don't have commissions and councils and, and committees about prisoners' rights. There's no prisoners' rights petition being signed here. Paul's in a very difficult spot. It's not as if Paul is somehow denying that, as if Paul is somehow using an exercise to deny. Paul is saying, I am not ignoring that, but I'm thinking of something even greater than that. No more than God is asking you to deny hardships that you find yourself in at times. Waiting in line at the government office, filling out unemployment paperwork for a job laid off that you feel like was an unjust exercise by your boss. But because the truth is it costs more to keep you employed being as long as you did than a new employee. So they found a way to let you go. That's real. Or, or, you know, you love to go to the playground and you love to spend that weekend, but you're waiting in the waiting room with your child and the test results with your kid. Nobody wants their kid to have any disease, let alone a common cold. See, God puts us in the trenches in places that might not be the physical prison, but circumstantially it can feel like a prison. And he puts us there for a new opportunity, not wanting it, but receiving it from the Lord for a new conversation. It's not new for you, it's new for the people you begin to talk to. It's that medical staff that you interact with. Like, I, did you not understand the test result? It's kind of iffy. I understood it. What's not iffy is that my God sits on the throne. That's not iffy to me. What's not iffy is that I know God loves me because he sent his son to die for me. That's not a question of my heart. That question has already been answered to me. So while tears are streaming down my cheeks in the reality of this fallen, broken world, I yet have hope because of an empty tomb. And so what we see here in the text is exactly what's happening. Some of you maybe don't know this guy. He was a pastor like your pastor, but about 400 years ago. He was a pastor in England. Also like your name and your pastor, John, but he wasn't Holmes. He was Bunyan, John Bunyan. John Bunyan preached the gospel faithfully to his people just like your pastor does week after week. But he got into some issues with the government because it's a messed up government at the time, and it also landed him in jail 1,600 years after Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel. And he's in, in jail at the time, and so, you know, the government is like, yo, we got to kind of silence this guy, so we're going to put him in jail. So he goes to jail, but on Sundays, he comes out into the courtyard of the jail, 
And he does what every pastor knows to do on Sundays. It's the Lord's Day. Well, I got the word. I got the people. Let's preach. So he begins to preach. Word begins to spread back into town like, yo, you know our pastor is in jail, but you can hear him on Sundays? So we can actually come over to the prison, sit outside the walls and hear him because it will echo over the walls. So now the government has essentially just doubled this congregation. That backfired on them quick, like this is not what we wanted. So what do they do? They're like, okay, enough is enough. They put him in his solitary confinement, a.k.a. dungeon, say, you ain't coming out. You're staying right there. So what does he do? God has him in that place write a book called Pilgrim's Progress. A book that would be a story about the gospel, an analogy, and metaphor, how it would be described in an allegory that would go on to be translated in the English language more than any other book in print except the Bible and in additional over 200 different languages. Friends, God's laughing at anybody's attempt to try to silence the gospel from getting out. It doesn't matter whether or not it's a village in Laos or it's a church in Hollywood. God has called his people in all seasons and circumstances to advance the gospel. And look at what happens as a result of that. Look at what it says here in verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. By Paul's example, by your example, other Christians start to imitate what you're modeling for them. It takes us to our second lesson for New City Fellowship to learn. It's in verses 12 to 14. Remember, God orchestrates, excuse me, Rejoice when, so point number two, rejoice when the gospel is being preached while you pray for the churches and ministries. Rejoice when the gospel is being preached while you pray for other churches and ministries. Look what's going on in verse 12, excuse me, verse 15. He introduces basically two groups. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And he goes on to kind of talk about these two groups. Selfish ambition, some out of love. You're like, what, what's, this is a bit complicated. What's happening here? Here's basically what's happening here. You've got some jealous preachers who are envious of Paul's following and reputation. And so they're trying to capitalize on the fact that Paul is in jail. And here's kind of what the conversation would go like. You know, it's like your pastor, John, faithfully preaching the gospel, he's in jail, and another pastor comes along, he's doing his thing, he's preaching, and he basically is like, yo, God loves a faithful gospel witness. Like, Amen. And God wants people to hear that as much as possible. It's like, Amen. Now you gotta ask me, you gotta ask yourself this question. If God loved that, why would he put your pastor John in jail? 
So obviously, if John's in jail, there's something wrong in John's life. I don't know what it is. I mean, I have a few suspicions, but I don't want to get into that. We should pray for him, though. But I'm going to be honest right now. Who do you think the Lord loves? Those of us who are in jail, those of us who are out of jail. It's kind of obvious, right? We're out of jail. So, so their ministry, their whole proclamation of Christ and crucified is out of envy and rivalry so as to malign the reputation of Paul. How jacked up is that? Like, talk about you got some issues. Talk about you got some insecurity. Like somebody's hugged that man or something. Here's Paul's perspective. Paul gets this report. My apologies. He gets this report. And he says, let's just review the basics. Do I mean to understand from you that these individuals are preaching in a literal Jesus of Nazareth, who is born of a virgin, who as fully man and fully God lived a perfect life, completing all of the requirements of God's word, of the holy law. And then at the end of his life, he then laid down his life and was crucified as a substitute that all those who would believe in him would be able to have their sins forgiven and all of his righteousness that he accomplished would be credited to them as if they had accomplished his perfect life. And then that he then resurrected physically from the grave three days later with an empty tomb, nothing left than lying Roman soldiers left, appearing to over 500 witnesses and then ascended to be at the right hand of the Father and promised to return again. And they're like, well, actually, that is exactly what they say. And Paul's like, I rejoice. They're like, yeah, but, but Paul, if we could go back to the opening update. These people are jacked up. They are envious. They are rivalrous. They're contentious. They have some issues. And Paul says, if they're proclaiming Christ, I rejoice. You notice how Paul kind of prioritizes things here? He does the same thing with prison, right? Paul's not happy about prison, but he's happy about advancing the gospel. Paul's not happy about envy and rivalry. He has a lot to say on these issues throughout his writings. He's concerned about even greater problems of false teachers. But Paul is triaging the issues if Christ is being proclaimed even if it means his own reputation, he rejoices. Here's what ends up happening practically in our world today. Pastors with our churches, I'm putting myself in this camp, not you guys. We can be very tempted to find our identity and our security and how many people are a part of our ministry. It, it's, it's like this. We, we find our identity in the three B's. The butts, the buildings, and the budgets. How many people are sitting in the seats? 
How many buildings, if we even have a building, I'm like a wandering Israelite right now, I got nothing. And how much giving goes on, what size of a budget? And that's like God's validation of our ministry. So I'm just going to be saying it kind of obviously like, hey, the more you have in those three categories, the more God's blessing. And so what ends up happening is if we find somebody who has more of that than us, envy and rivalry kicks in. We start kind of feeling a sense of like, well, you know what? They're probably like watering it down. They're, they're probably doing something. And, th and that is true. That is certainly a problem. Paul has problems with false teachers that he rightly addresses, but it doesn't seem to be the context here. Paul is not saying he rejoices in unhealthy ministries. What he's saying he rejoices in is the gospel being proclaimed. Friends, I encourage you to have that heart that Paul has where you love the gospel. You love the salvation of sinners. You're not only praying that you would gather, that you would grow, and that you would go, but you're happy to hear if other Christians are doing that as well. Even if they go to other churches that's not here at New City Fellowship. Now, you might hear of unhealthy churches. Well, pray for them. Love them. In the same way you would want them to pray for you if you heard about them hearing about you guys going to unhealthy church, which is not the case by God's grace here. Friends, Paul's perspective is he loves something more than his own reputation. And he prays for those who otherwise would struggle accordingly. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Takes us to our third lesson for New City Fellowship to advance the gospel. Find your courage and confidence in Christ. Find your courage and confidence in Christ. So lesson number one for, for us was remember God orchestrates events in his people's lives to advance the gospel. Number two is to rejoice when the gospel is being, pro, is being preached while you pray for the churches and ministries. And then number three, find your courage and confidence in Christ. Now, he's talking about rejoicing. In verse 19, he starts talking about He's rejoicing. He's thankful for their prayers. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, will turn out for my deliverance. And it's an interesting phrase. He's using a verse that actually is the same kind of phrase that Job uses. In fact, it's a, it's a Greek translation of a passage that was originally written in Hebrew uh, from the book of Job, where Job says, I am confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul has this passage in mind as he's writing here in Philippians 1, as he's thinking about the runnings of Job. Now, you know what happens with the book of Job. If you're not familiar, maybe new here to Christianity, or maybe just sort of new to kind of religion in general, and that's a conversation I want to have with you in a minute. But there's an older work in the Bible of a guy who lived before the timing of Paul, where this guy, Job, seemingly was like the man in the land. Homeboy seemingly could do nothing wrong, except everything went wrong. And he didn't know if he was going to live or die. And he says, basically, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if there's anybody even upstairs in heaven. Has God forgotten me? What happened? He's got a lot of questions. His friends show up, which is sweet as friends. The problem is when they start talking, which is honestly sometimes our problem too, right? 
like, hey, just be with me. Don't talk to me. Because you talk to me, you make things worse. But what happens is, so they start talking, and they're like, well, Job, let's just be honest. You're a bit of a hot mess, and let's just kind of reverse this thing. All, it'll only be true is if this, if, this, if this is true, it's because something's in your life. Job's like, I'm telling you, I don't think this is, that's the case. And finally, God shows up in chapter 38 of Job through 42, and God says, all of you be quiet. I'm going to have to say a few words now. And he's like, in fact, I'm going to ask a few questions. And like verse after verse, he's just asking question after question. So finally, when they're all done, like, I'm not talking. You talk, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to say a word. Like, I don't want to talk. Job's perspective, though, when he didn't know the future before God shows up, was he didn't know how it was going to work out. Paul's perspective here is the same thing. He's in jail not believing God owes him freedom. He is dug down deep in his faith in a sovereign God who's wise and good in his ways. And he does not know how it's going to turn out. We're about to see in a few verses, he wants to get out. He can imagine what that would look like, but he's not sure. I mean, we can just pull the car over right now and have that conversation. Paul is teaching something here about his courage and his confidence being in Christ, not in the promise of freedom to come. Friends, what happens if you pray for something, plead for something, long for something, intercede for others for something, and it does not happen. Healing, restoration of a relationship, the return of a child in the next couple of years, a job that you've been looking for. Paul says something here that's profound. Look at it with me. He says in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, nothing's changed for Paul, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? To die is what? Gain. What in the world is he talking about? That's big boy, big girl Christianity right there. I mean, that's like, that's remarkable what he's talking about right there. As he says later on, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, he, he realizes this and the significance of this. He's hard pressed between the two, verse 23. To desires to depart and be with Christ. Paul's auditing just how much we love this world. He's saying things that each one of us need to hear. That my courage and confidence that life will continue is not because I got some more plans. No, his courage and confidence is because Christ's will will be accomplished. He's not sure how. And if he dies, for him it's even greater. It's not because the man is suffering that he wants it to end. No, in fact, Philippians is all about joy. How he rejoices always. But then notice what happens next. How his courage and confidence works its way out. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. But then he says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Friends, think of it like this. Paul realizes if God continues to give him life, it's so that he can minister to other people. Not so that he can be consumed and satisfied in his own desires for more of life. That's a bit of an audit in our perspective, right? We're like, God, you are going to come back. May it happen. God, when I die, I have eternal confidence that I have eternal life in Christ. Thank you. Praise God for that. But I got some plans. I've been saving up for retirement I'm looking forward to enjoy. I'm single and I'm really looking forward to being married first. We're married and we want to have kids first. We've got kids. I can't wait to have grandkids. So much of our future aspirations, none of which are inherently wrong to have, unless you misunderstand what I'm saying, but they can become so idolatrous that we love them more than Christ himself and not see our life for the good of others around us. I mean, Paul is saying here, if I'm going to remain, it's going to be for your sake. Friends, think about this practically in the church. And, and just consider this as a perspective, just to kind of put in the back of your mind. When I ask you, as I'm asking you, why did you come to church this morning? There's a number of good answers to that. There's not like one good answer. There's a number of good answers to that. But here's a problem that sometimes happens with how Christians view the church. They can view the church as like a tool that God gives them, a good tool, God gave it, a tool that God gives them to help them and their Christian life with God. And so that way, at times, they can choose to use the tool or not. Or they can choose to use other tools, a podcast here, a book there. These are other tools that God's given. And the church is, well, it's a good tool, but it's simply that it's a tool for me to determine how to live my best expression of my Christian life. Friends, that's a completely understandable way to think, and it's completely flawed. Now, Jesus is putting the glory of himself on display through a people brought together. That they would ask the question, what love is this? This is Jesus saying in John 13, 34, and 35, but by, by this they shall know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And the significance here at New City is that your love for one another is because not everybody looks like you. And yet you still love one another. Nobody's raised like you, yet you still love one another. In fact, what's happening here is you are saying something is more valuable. Congratulations, you've all done it. More valuable than not being here, uh, being out on your own, but to be here together for the good of other people. So when I ask you the question, why did you come this morning? Was it for the good of others? That I might speak words of encouragement to somebody. That I might learn and meet somebody new. Maybe somebody who's struggling in their walk with the Lord. That I can pray with them or pray for them this coming week. Or did I learn somebody who maybe is not in Christ? I just say, hey, can we get together so we can maybe do a Bible study together? Or, Let's just have lunch. I just want to hear your story. Or friends, did you come here simply to receive or also to give? Paul says, if God gives me life, I'm going to give it away. Amen. I'm going to give it away for the good of others. And he finds that courage and confidence in how he's going to live to die or to live for Christ, which takes us to the fourth and final point here. You are each responsible for this church's unity. As you gather together, you are each responsible, which is what he's segueing into here. Look at verse 27. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing in firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, Paul wants to get back to these people. It would be like your pastor, John, if the Lord had taken him away for whatever reason, he would want to be back and to see you and to hear of you and to see you by face and to interact with you and encourage you. He's planning to do that. Paul is planning to do that with the Philippians. He says whether or not it actually happens, for all the plans he could make, and it seems difficult as right now, previous verses, he's in jail and he might not even live, at least let him hear this reputation. And look at what he says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's talking about a unity that is centered on Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. But notice kind of the language he uses. He uses this continued repetitive term here where he says in verse 27 that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There's a, there's a unity here. Now, friends, let's be honest. You can put five people in a room and have ten different opinions. It just works that way. I mean, like, unity is super hard. The more you get people, the harder it gets. But sometimes the mistake to make that Christians can make when they're in churches is like the leaders, the elders of the church, they accomplish unity by kind of surveying the constituency, figuring out the demographical interests, the particular preferences, and as long as it represented enough with enough display or rotating frequency, the unity can be preserved. And so the elders kind of get sent out to the congregation as like senators that kind of represent the various people. And, and the elders are, the, are going to kind of secure the unity. They're going to preserve the unity of the church. Paul's like, I don't know anything about that. He knows about elders for sure. He wants elders in every church. But he talks about a unity here that he puts at the feet of every Philippian Christian. And look at what he says. Striving side by side. What's he talking about? He's talking about the reality. This is hard work. This is hard work. He says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he's commending them. He gives thanks to God for them for a number of things. He talks about their work of faith. He talks about their steadfastness of love or the steadfastness of hope. But he also talks about their labor of love. Friends, labor of love seems like an oxymoron, right? Like if you just love, you should just feel it. It should flow easily. And if it's too much work, then it's probably not of God. That's not true at all. If that was true, Jesus wouldn't have come here. What we see here in the text is that they're striving side by side. But notice where the unity is found. End of verse 27. For the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. The unity. For all of the diversity that's found in this room. The unity in this church. As it has been for the last three years. And will continue to be, Lord willing, for years to come will be as long as you lift the name of Jesus Christ higher than any other interest in this room. That the name of Jesus Christ is what you celebrate and love and cherish. Everything else can be discussed and it can be debated, but will be of no debate is that we're going to strive to love Jesus Christ and then as we love him, learn to love each other. March of 2017, so we're talking about two and a half years ago, 
I'd come back with my wife to South Florida, specifically to Fort Lauderdale. They have some friends here, as you know, from being back here who had different places that we could stay at. It's been our, our practice and pattern. My wife and I have been married 23 years. We weren't married 23 years at that time. I've been married 20 years. And we came back for an annual or just marriage retreat. And we just wanted to spend some time together for a couple days, just resting from ministry, really praying about what the Lord bringing us back to South Florida. Because my wife's default position was over my dead body. We said, let's pray, let's fast, let's seek counsel, let's consider it. And so we did. In the middle of that trip, I surprised my wife and took her to the church that we got married in. Now, this is March. We got married in August. Now, it was only, wasn't our anniversary, but it had been 20 years, 6 months, and 19 days. That felt enough for me. <laughs> Who's counting? Surprised her, had a pastor at that church come, and other people came, and Surprising, we renewed our vows. Our marriage wasn't in a bad place. It was in a good place. Uh, we're thankful for the love that we had. But I wanted her just to hear it one more time, that I loved her. I was committed to her. I wasn't going anywhere, no matter what we decided, no matter where the Lord led us, whether it was in full-time ministry or any other place of ministry, I was committed to be with her. And the tears ran down our cheeks. We just looked at each other's eyes and said, we're in it. Till death do us part. Friends, I don't believe this morning I'm necessarily talking to people in this room because you have forgotten what you've committed yourself to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this morning that we've been probably verbally high-fiving this morning with things I've been saying and things that you agree with and is in your heart. For some of you, it's maybe been a challenge. For others of you, it is just affirm what's already there, what God has already been doing in your heart. All I'm asking you to do this morning is to renew your vows like I did to my wife. To come back to the Lord yet again and just say, Lord, I'm in it. I'm in a jail cell or in a waiting room. I'm in an apartment. I'm in a house. I'm in a single relationship or I'm divorced. Lord, wherever you have me, this is where you have me. And I'm in it to my dying breath. For the good of others, for the glory of your name. I pray that as you guys gather and grow, that you would go with that perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word and to be reminded of the hope that's found in Christ. Father, I pray that that hope has been made evident and obvious to all and that my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning would be encouraged yet again. And for those who are not in Christ, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the amazing hope found in Jesus. That a life lived for him is a life for the first time truly lived. Where sin is forgiven. Where hope is found. Identity and security are fondly known. From all from having surrendered their life to you, asking you to forgive them as they trust you for their eternal life. May the gospel be made clear to all, no matter where each and every person is this morning and in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.